Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. And I'm Nick. What's up, buddy? How you doing? Eating me some fried chicken from Popeyes. Fried chicken from Popeyes. Wonderful news. How could so, it not be wonderful news? <laughs> well, it's food, and food's good. I had dinner a bit ago, so all is well. Hey, uh, so this week, dude, uh, it's kind of, I threw this at you a little bit. Uh, I'm going out of town next week, and so we have two announcements this week. The first <laughs> is that, um, just at the top of the show, housekeeping kind of stuff. Well, first announcement, San Diego Comic Con is real, and it's coming. Uh, writing night Thursday night. And that is the 17th of July, correct? Yeah, July. 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 Sounds like a weird, like, comic book name there. Right. And your your voice just got all funky, too, so there's that. Hairball. Um, (laughs) Hairballs are real. And, in fact, it is July 18th, Thursday night, that we're doing our event. (laughs) Okay. Glad you checked. (laughs) I decided I'd pop open a calendar just to give people the correct information. So, yeah, July 18th, if you're in the San Diego area and want to come hang out with us, we are going to do a uh, couple hours uh, writing and talking about writing, and then we're going to do a little um, bar con. And you can meet, meet some of my geeky friends that are in town um, and hang out with me and Nick. So it'll be fun. So It'll be good. So good. Yeah. So we have that announcement. The other announcement, kind of the bigger one, is that <sighs> uh, I think it makes a little more sense considering um, now that we've got our ducks in a row and things are happening. Uh, we're gonna do. We're gonna record new shows every other week, um, going forward. But that said, uh, you will get at least two episodes a month. But we'll be kind of sprinkling in some other stuff here and there. Um, so you may get up to three shows a month. But at least for now, every other week we're gonna do that. Makes more sense for our schedules. Going to the summer, I'm gone a lot this summer. We may change that again when I get back into my day job. But we'll let you know. Very, very, very true. Yeah, it's and it's not just Marshall. It's yeah. me too. I'm I have some vacations and workloads that are just beyond reason to deal with right now. But hey, if it makes sense, it works, right? Well, the funny part about podcasting, man, is like it's it's a thing you have to schedule, sit down, do, record, edit, post, and keep up with. Um, but what I like is that although the shows will be coming out every other week. Uh, we still have our Discord channel and our Facebook page and everything else. So we've been talking to p- some amazing people in all those avenues. And thank you for everybody who does that. So Yeah, absolutely. It's We're still going to be in touch with everyone, still trying to reach out. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just hoping to kind of free up some more of our own personal time on it because it does right. take, take some time to get this organized. <laughs> Whether it sounds like we're organized or not, <laughs> we <Well>. do try. <laughs> And, you know, I'd rather do it now than like I did with my other show, like three years later and missing weeks here and there, just saying, okay, we're doing it now. And if we change it, cool. If not, you'll get a show every other week. But that said, um, keep the dialogue going. The shows, I think, potentially might be a titch longer if we're doing every other week, um, mm-hmm. if we have content coming from our community and stuff like that. So uh, keep talking to us. And we love it. Everybody who's joining the Discord recently, um, it's been great. So. Yeah, and we have more book giveaways after do. July, and That's I'm so exciting. excited. So we'll be good. Speaking of books and giving aways, <gasps> dun, segue. Dun, dun. <laughs> we have, have we finally decided what we're doing for this thing? Because it's been like two shows now. Where we're like, oh, we're gonna give this away. We're gonna do this, and then last week, and it's funny. Like we got to figure out a way to put the uh, 
to get the blooper reels to people too. Maybe I can <laughs> put those out there sometimes. But some of the stuff I cut from this show, it's hilarious because that little back and forth about how we're gonna do the contest last last week or last episode, in episode thirteen, was probably twice as long as you guys heard. <laughs> oh I wow! Cut, I cut out a good six minutes of like. I discovered something halfway through our conversation. You were said something that I didn't even understand what we were saying, and it was just it was pretty funny. But anyway, um, so let's Makes can sense. you tell can you tell the people though, please, for the love of goats, man, tell the people um, what not, we're gonna not, do. Not really fan of goats. I'm more, I don't like goats. Well, I, I mean, don't like goats either. Maybe a little pygmy goat or a startle mm, goat. No, I don't like farm animals, dude. Oh, dude, I'm not I, a big animal guy. These are the tangents that we shouldn't get on. But right, I'm not right, right. kidding go, you. Go I would love a cow. <laughs> oh, God. That's Dude. the worst animal. No, the worst think, animal. Have you seen little farm girls with their baby cows? Oh and they God. bring them in the house. And the cow, like, curls mm-hmm. up in a ball and rests his yep. little head in this girl's lap. It's mm-hmm. like, oh. And I have a friend who has a pet pig. Here's the thing, dude. Those <gasps> are farm animals. Those are farm animals. And I grew up in the Central Valley near farms. And I don't want any of those animals in my house. Yeah, they're kind of stinky. Yeah, to say the nah. least, dude. Hey. It's not like they're it... going to go in a litter box. You see a litter box for a cow? Yeah, it's called no, a pasture. That Well, <laughs> here's the thing. If it's in my house, the potential's there, my friend. Leave the door open and it can leave. <sighs> anyway, we can talk about this another time. <laughs> speaking, speaking, of things, speaking of things I cut out of the show, which <laughs> I might not because we're only going to talk for like five minutes anyway. But so, dude. How are we gonna run this contest for contest for the Pit My Airship uh signed copy from Maurice Broadus? We are gonna throw something at you that's like never before. Mm. Kidding. Um so we kinda talked about it, we decided um this week we're doing an Afrofuturism panel from Mocon, um, which is fantastic and I loved it. Uh and believe it or not, this is the intro for that. <laughs> We haven't even mentioned what we're doing yet. Dun, anyway, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, so, Pit My Airship is actually an Afrofuturism type novel. Um, so, we kind of want to highlight that. And so, for this contest, what we want to do is have you guys send in 500 to 1,000 words. If you send in more than 1,000 words, you are disqualified. Under 500 words, you are disqualified. Ooh, I like it. <sighs> I got to. Um, legally, you can be anywhere in the world, I think, because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just we're not bound by a contract, so I'll still mail it out to you if you're in Ireland or something. Um, so yeah, so what we're gonna do for this giveaway is we want you guys to submit something to us that um, involves a black character. Indeed. Um, so you don't have to write from the point of view, or your main character does not have to be black, but we want you to highlight something about either a black character or a black culture. And this, and this is a bit of an exercise in writing the other, because I don't know how many black listeners we have. But again, this is something that comes up with the workshops we did on the boat with Tempest, um, uh, Bledsoe and, and some other folks, and of course, Maurice and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think it's important as a black author myself. Um, I, I think, I think it's a good, I think it's a good challenge. So 500 through a thousand words. Um, uh, can, Marshall, can I ask you something though about that? Uh, sure. Just because this is a learning point for me, too. Oh, God. Am I going to have to cut this? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but if you go. do, cut it after right now. So okay, people go. know you cut it out and it'll be funnier. All right. Go ahead. Okay. How do you properly... How, what are the do-nots when you're trying to describe a black character? Um, 
shoot. I'd have to go to, I, I really would like to go back to my notes from, um, Tempest's workshop from the writing excuses, uh, retreat. But that said, um, just, I, in my opinion and, and hers as well, you know, when you're describing someone, try to avoid comparing them to the colors of food. Um, try to avoid stereotypes. I, I feel like somebody's, I feel like somebody's, blackness or ethnicity should come out or race or whatever you want to say should come out because of the world and because of the characters and 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 what's going on around those characters right so rather than say you know describing them as black understand like let's say your point of view character is not black like maybe they think something about black people or maybe there's something going on in the world um, in regards to, uh, black people or something like that. You know what I mean? Like have it come out rather than instead of saying my character is black and now here's my story. Like you, you really need to be, you need to be careful, especially if you're not a black, if you're not a black author, this is going to be difficult. But again, we're not, we're not going to come back to you guys and be like, you know, obviously you're racist. Yeah. You don't asshole. write anything blatantly racist, obviously. But I mean, we're not judging that part of it, but this is a challenge. It's a challenge to write. Um, a race or ethnicity that is not your own and um, and again research helps talking to people helps sensitivity readers help but for this contest just challenge yourself and see if you can get that character's um, race ethnicity or whatever is going on in that world to come out um, organically is not really the right way to say it but have it come out rather than saying their skin was the color of uh, you know caramel caramel or cocoa or you Ooh. know or, or or milk chocolate or whatever i mean come on Whoa. you know what i mean see even i, I know that one's bad i'm just saying i mean <laughs> i feel like they're all about the same really um, dang nah, i feel bad nah, i mean there's varying degrees obviously but i mean it, it also <laughs> depends on on your writing and stuff like that too and the world you're creating and in this short of a piece it might be challenging so yeah keep that in mind um as as you go forward and if and and do your best and and give us what you got and I think I think you'll all be fine. I imagine I imagine that most of our audience or a lot of our audience are sci-fi and fantasy authors. We're writing the other all the time, um, you know, in aliens and elves and dwarves and stuff like that. It's there's not really the only major difference is you get to create. You don't come across stereo, stereotyping dwarves in a fantasy piece because there's really no dwarves fantasy dwarves i mean you know there's really no uh real world comparison to where like oh that's races against dwarves you know what i mean or that's stereotyping dwarves yeah. because sometimes you have to do that because of the characters that are talking about dwarves classically if elves hate dwarves of course an elf describing a dwarf is going to come across as racist and stereotypical because that's the beef and the and, and the characters in the world does that make sense yeah say, it does to I, me did I say beef? <laughs> you, you did. And I talked about a cow earlier, so <laughs> looks like uh, we're both still hungry. I brought it full circle. All right. <laughs> so all that said, the contest is 500,000 words. Email either me or or Nick, uh, Marshall at MarshallCar.com and, and Nick at, uh, what is yours? Nicholas? Nicholas Bright at BrightInks.org. Yeah. And all that's in our show notes as well. So it is. You can also, if you need to send it through Discord, through a private message, you can as well. We can also put a. Uh, can we do a channel where people can put links to stuff? But then that opens it to the public. Um, yeah, yeah yep. private pri- private DMs um, in Discord is fine as well. And if you don't want your name announced as a winner, 
Yeah. Do let us know as well. Um, I mean, obviously, we're going to reach out to you ahead of time. Um, But just let us know. I know how some people get and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But we will announce that there is a winner and that we'll contact you separately. Um, If you have a title to your piece, we'll announce the winning title. Mm -hmm. If that's what you want. But we're flexible. Yeah, Yeah, we're definitely flexible. And this is our first contest. So however this goes, is how it goes. So And be prepared for August for another one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. September. September. Back to school. Sounds good. I go back in August, but <sighs> anyway. <laughs> I don't. I'm so happy. Oh god, I wish I didn't have to go back so soon. Okay. So all that said, uh we are introducing well, this is a long way of saying it. This week we are not covering a topic per se, but we are introducing uh a panel Nick recorded at MoCon 2019. And this is an Afrofuturism panel. Uh, that was absolutely phenomenal. And so it's Maurice. And do you have a list of all the folks that were on that? I do. Awesome. We have the one and only Troy Wiggins from Fire Magazine. Fire Lit that Magazine. Fa- yeah, not, if that sounds familiar, Fire Magazine is the publication that I've been talking about the last couple of weeks that I plan to submit my piece that I'm maybe almost kind of done with. I, Troy's awesome. You guys will hear him on it. He's a, you know, a very big... Um, advocate for black communities. Great person to work with and talk to. Um, we also have Maurice Broadus, which you guys already know, the infamous Maurice. Um, yep. Bill Campbell's on there as well. Um, and he talks a little bit about his story and like some of the things he had to go through when he lived in the Czech Republic. Like it's kind of crazy. So he's, he's awesome. He is both a writer and a publisher, a small print press publisher. And nice. then we have the one. <laughs> That MoCon was all about Sheree Renee Thomas, who Dude, is hearing the her sweetest speak, oh. person ever. <laughs> She's amazing. She is. I wish I had gotten to meet her because uh, hearing her editing that, the piece you're going to listen to in a minute, uh, editing that, I was just like, God, I wish I was there. I wish I could have had a conversation with this woman. She seems just phenomenal. She, yeah, she, there's a question in this one that was asked and her response, her first word was honey. And I was like, <laughs> yes, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> and she just dropped a truth bomb on everyone where it was, yeah. And it's one of those things, too, me listening to this and hearing about it. And, you know, a lot of it is they're talking about um, the black community in literature and in the arts and in writing and in this industry. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, shit, a lot of publishers have st- are still doing things from the 70s, like mm-hmm. in the 60s. And it's like... Man, like you just like it's something you don't realize unless you're experiencing it, and you would think in this day and age that a publisher isn't going to have their, uh, what is it? Uh, oh man, Maurice talks about it. Yeah, like uh, were you talking about like their um? It's where you purposely hire affirm- someone of aff- color. Affirmative action. Yeah. Yes. Affirmative yes. action. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I knew it started with an A. I didn't know what yeah. it was. Um, yeah, so they talk about how like affirmative action in publishing someone who is um, non-white, mm-hmm. basically, and you know the struggle that it was. Um, it's just go- crazy. And this goes back to that conversation because the the system is still fairly archaic. You know, obviously, so are things like the Oscars and stuff like that, which is what we you know, which I've talked to back and forth on my other <sighs> show too. But but the point is, my friend, is that. That's why I like that publications like Fire Magazine exist. You know what yeah. I mean? 
and it's not it, it's those things like that where it's like it's not it's not an exclusive to other people that are not that it is a showcase of mm-hmm. people who are that and because you know voices haven't been heard talents haven't been recognized yeah and uh and when and, you and when you ask for a thing like when you ask for a thing from a certain section of a of a huge population you get some amazing stuff that you would probably I'm not saying that would end up in a slush pile, but because of the system and the way it's set up, that stuff isn't going to get highlighted the way it could be in a mm-hmm. FIA magazine, for example. Well, it, and to be honest, I think it's going to encourage a lot more people from a certain type of community to do that. Um, I hope so. Because it's one of those things, like, if you know, like, traditionally, people of color are not going to be published in here for whatever reason, you know, it's not going to make it through the slush pile. Right. Why would like what's your advantage of going there versus being like, oh, I know they only publish people of color. Right. Why wouldn't you want to submit to them? Exactly. So hopefully a lot more people are able to go through, submit um to you know to special publications like that, um, and not have to deal with the other bullcrap that that is involved in the industry. Right. Rest assured though, there's a lot of people trying to change it and make things better. Um and this, for me, this kind of goes back to the whole industry and how archaic it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you listen to some agents, there's no real way to, to track book sales. Right. <laughs> you know, you really don't know how well a book is doing other than what a store first initially bought. After right. that, you don't know how well a book's doing flying off the shelf or at all. So Right. And so, and, and I think, and I think uh, the takeaway here is all of these topics are covered or are touched on, of course, in the panel you're going to listen to. Um, these people are highly intelligent, awesome folks. And what I really like, too, is that folks are able to ask questions, right? And I think the questions were a little more audible in this one. If I remember, I edited it several weeks ago. But um, I think the questions are a little easier to hear. But if they're not, I did my best with it. But also, at the same time, they do a really good job of not necessarily recapping the exact question, but you can get the context of the question from from the panelist's answer. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. I I want to say the questions were it was a better audio than it was. It was gems. better than the it was better than the Gen one. I know that. I just know there were a couple that were kind of touchy, but um, no big deal. But yeah, man. Uh, so I think that's I think that's good. I think we let them listen, and and you have a couple weeks. We aren't going to record next week. I'm taking a short little vacay with my. Um, family and of course we're going to go to every other week anyway at after this week so what we want you to do is not only enter the contest so you have a little time for that but listen to the interview let us know what you think hit us back on discord and give us something to uh wrap up this conversation uh next time we record yeah i'm actually really excited for that yeah so oh and guys it's it's june let us know if you were able to submit anything last yes. month. And you know what? Whatever. Like, if you got to submit it this weekend, that's cool, too. I ain't saying <laughs> I'm, nothing. I'm, I'm a little late in my final pass on my other one, but I am going to submit it as soon as I get back from this little vacation. Um, I'm going to have that piece done and edited, and I'm going to have the... Because um, we're going to a cabin, and I'm going to sit and write for several hours a day. So I'm really excited about that. So I'm going to have my FIA magazine piece uh done as well which i will send you as soon as i return sir Ooh, I think that is good because i'm waiting for you to read another piece of mine so i, I can... know i haven't had a chance i'm sorry it's been a shit show at work but no, 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 you're, you're good so because once one you, you finish me or a new one 
It's the one I sent you last. Okay. It's yeah, my yeah. longer one. Yeah, yeah. Because once I kind of put the finishing touches on that and solidify it, that is going to be going to Clark's World. Awesome, dude. And I plan on submitting to Clark's World as well. I think I might do the piece you read. Maybe. We'll see. Um, I haven't looked at their what you call it yet, but. Wait. Are you talking about the, the, the S iPhone? Yeah, the one you just sent. Is that not a good one to send? Oh, no. I thought you Should... were doing that one to Siri. I am. Can I not do both? Uh, all depends if Siri has first publication rights or not. Good point. I will look into that. Fine print from last week. Um, <laughs> full circle. <laughs> exactly. All right. So enjoy the panel and uh, you'll hear our voices again at the end, but that's just the wrap up. And uh, we'll come back at you guys in a couple weeks. Thank you for bearing with us and thank you for listening and let us know what you think of this amazing panel with all these amazing folks. So there we are. We're out. Boom. Shakalaka. <laughs> Okay, first, everybody have a phone in here? Okay, get it out, pull it up. I think there are some cards that went around that have Kepra.org on it. If you can right now go to your Facebook, we're going to be streaming live. So if you can share that Facebook page to all your friends in your network, we really appreciate that. Yeah. It's a live video. You should see it on the Facebook page. Kepra Troy Wiggins. I am a writer and editor from Memphis, Tennessee. My short fiction is in several magazines. My most recent uh, piece was published in a magazine called Beneath Ceaseless Skies. It's titled Fury at the Crossroads. I'm the, uh, one of the editors of Fire Magazine of Black Speculative Fiction, who we last year won a World Fantasy Award, and we are on the ballot now, shortlisted for a Hugo Award. Uh, we've been around for about three years. Our magazine serves to publish and elevate the voices of black science fiction fantasy writers, so we only publish black writers. I'm sorry, could you say that name of that magazine one more time? It's FIA, F-I-Y-A-H, uh, magazine of black speculative fiction. Uh, we'll be opening submissions in July, so if you're working on something and you're black, I want it. Send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my color is always black. All black everything. Okay, all right. All black everything. Uh, my name is Maurice Broadus. You might have heard of me. There, I do a convention that's named after me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> Uh, I'm an author and editor, uh, although I guess my time as an editor is winding down as Apex Magazine is closing. Uh, but they're closing oh, with my issue, so I killed it. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going out on an Afrofuturist note, so there's that. So we'll be looking for that in the next week, I believe, it'll be coming out. Um, other than that, I have uh, two books debuting this month, uh, Pimp My Airship, as well as uh, The Usual Suspects. My name is Bill Campbell. Um, I'm an author, editor. I just became a comics writer, I guess. And I'm a publisher. I own Rosarian Publishing. As we like to say, introducing the world to itself since 2013. And whenever you are, you're in Rosarian. 
Hi, my name is Sheree Renee Thomas. I'm a Memphis-born writer, uh, New York trained editor. Um, I write short fiction, occasional poetry, occasional essays. Uh, mostly well known for uh, two collections: Dark Matter, uh, Century of Speculative Fiction from the African Diaspora, and Dark Matter: Reading the Bones. It'll be the 20th anniversary next year. Um, I uh, let's just see. What can I say about me? I have a new uh, all fiction collection coming out next year. From yes. Third Man Books, so look for that. Yes. Nightbar Blues, hey. and I have also edited, co-edited um, a collection called Trouble the Waters: Tales from the Deep Blue, um, with Troy Wiggins. Will be published by Rosier. So hear news from us for about our upcoming Kickstarter because we yes. need your help. Right. Oh, we <laughs> forgot our colors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. I get the colors? Green. Uh, my, my my color is green. What's uh, it then? Um, I was born on May Day, so it's always red. <laughs> I'm going to say green for prosperity, and I hope I said Troy Pan Morgan, who is not yeah. here. She's in Northampton right cool now, being amazing, yeah. and myself. So, yeah, green, so we need that. Green and blue. I'll say green. We need that green. Blue <laughs> <laughs> for the earth and the water, Mama Wata. <laughs> yes, thank you. Okay, so again, we're talking about Afrofuturism as a tool for community development. So, what is Afrofuturism? <sighs> Afrofuturism. <laughs> don't okay. give me the textbook. Okay, I, I don't. Well, the textbook has its definition is old, but put it like that. Um, Mark Derry, of course, coined the term in 1992, 93, um, in an essay he did, and then he went on to publish a book called Flame Wars. So he's a wonderful culture critic and an awesome guy in his own right. Um, and he was just observing something that has been happening, or, you know, we say for as long as we've been you know, in this country in particular. Um, though Afrofuturism is supposed to be this lens that you use to look at um, black cultural production um, over time, to look at um, our, uh, where we are as a society, how um, our relationship to technology is changing perhaps, where it might um, affect our musical production, our creative artistic production, and even the way we form communities and the way we see ourselves in the world. It is actually a what I think of as a movable feast because there's so many different communities that are constantly redefining and evolving the idea of Afrofuturism. Some of them don't particularly care for that term um, because it's very American centric. Because guess what, Black Americans, you know, are doing we're doing that work and and um, creating it initially. But it is it looks like something different on the continent of Africa in all those different countries. It looks like something different different for an Afro Dutch person. Um, and in Europe, and in Canada, um, and in the Caribbean, around the world. So it is this amazing way of thinking about um, how black communities can thrive and survive in not just the future, but right now. So that's what Afrofuturism is for me. Now, I was listening to a few of you last night talking about this thing called Afrofuturism. <laughs> I'm not gonna name any names. Uh, Did you just play Troy? About the prince I was drinking. So give me that other perspective that we were really talking about a lot last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, and um, so with with much honor and respect to Sheree, who was one of the people present at the beginning of the thing, I think it's important um, to acknowledge the people who did this work in the past, which is a central idea of Afro preachers and the idea that. Africans and African people of African descent that have existed along this timeline 
for forever, right? And so we have to look at the past. We have to be in the present. We have to be in the future. But for me, I might diverge a little bit. My definition of Afrofuturism is that it's a philosophy, um, a theoretical framework, a uh, praxis that Black people all over the world can use to chart the courses of their future while being cognizant of the past and living in the present. Um, and that works out in a material way. So how we envision our communities, what they might look like, what they look like now. Um, it also manifests in our art, the kinds of works that we create when we imagine a future where we're free, we're free of oppression, the multiple oppressions that hold us down. Um, so really a way of seeing, uh, kind of what Sharice said, a lens, a way of seeing um, all the possibilities of a future for a black person with the shackles of oppression and discrimination and all these negative things removed, or a future where we've successfully navigated those things and have come to terms with them. So there are different futures. Afro futures and helps us place those futures in context. So in the context of community development, which is what um, we here in Indianapolis are really looking at right now, especially with Shepherd Institute and Cafe Creative, um, what's the artist's role in that? And why is Afrofuturism so important to developing communities? So I know for me, one of the big things about Afrofuturism is it does give us that space to, to not just breathe, well, one, to breathe, mm -hmm. but also to dream. I mean, a lot of times we're just so busy about the, the business of survival, you know, making ends meet, you know, making it the next day, doing whatever, you know, we're so busy about the business of survival, you know, we don't often don't have the chance to just take that room to just dream about possibilities. And so for me, Afrofuturism is all about taking that time, dreaming about possibilities. What could we do? Who could we be? So that's what it's for me. Uh, it was, um, one of the things that for me that was interesting on a, on a very personal level was uh, for years when I started Rosarium and had to start talking about it, I would um, always tell people I never wanted to be a publisher, right? Because um, it's really true. Um, but, <laughs> but it was really weird. Um, two years ago, when I was coming back from TCAF, right, uh, which was like a 10-hour drive, so like 3 in the morning, I, I drive into my, my parking lot and I turn off the um, thing on my phone, or I turn on my phone, and Twitter is like blowing up with my name on it, and like I'm not popular, so, <laughs> so I was like, what in the world's going on? So, and people are like, Bill, is this you? Bill, is this, you know, Bill, is this you? Bill, is this you? I'm like, what did I do? Like, I'm, this time. Yeah, right. And this woman, in, in preparation for Wonder Woman, was reading all of the original Wonder Woman comics. And in Wonder Woman 3, there's this letter from this 16-year-old kid from Pittsburgh talking about the lack of representation in comics and that it's only, they only do, you know, like if they're French, they'll say Nespa, but you'll never know that they're French other than that. And you always have like these token representations and wouldn't it be good one day if writers of these different places could actually speak for themselves in comics and that person and that 16 year old was me. Wow. So, and I was like, oh, maybe I did want to be like that. Because <laughs> clearly, and, and it's really funny because a lot of people always bring up Avery Brooks's quote about, 
our children need to, it's important for our children to see ourselves in the future. And like when I think of Afrofuturism on a very personal level, I think of that 16 year old kid because apparently he knew something that the 40 some odd year old man didn't know about himself. I totally forgot. And I, and I wish I stayed forgetting. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so like in a very personal way, like that's the thing that I think about is like uh, we can help plant those seeds for this future that, that we, we can't even imagine for ourselves. I think artists are important in the conversation about Afrofuturism because art allows us to experience stories in ways that sometimes just having a conversation will do. It helps us to visualize it. It helps us to have empathy and experience it. You're reading a good story or characters that you're interested in. For me, as a reader, I become those characters. And whatever their heroic journey has been, no matter how harrowing, it, um, I feel like I just went through that too. Um, I'm thinking of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and the last episode, I literally stood up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say anymore, but I stood up. <laughs> what, what? And then I had that whole emotion in my body, and it became real. It's like a neurological, you know, connection that's there. And a memory that I probably won't forget for a long time. Thank you. But um, I needed that. And I feel like when... Artists understand that, and we're not always good at articulating that, but we create the work in all its forms, that it can help people envision the dreams and the plans and the things that they're trying to create. Um, we can help build a community and commitment behind it, because sometimes if you just see it before it's even formed, people have the inspiration to do all the problem solving and, and the planning to figure out how to make that thing happen. So it's important to have artists at the table from day one to help you do that think, whatever you're building. So Afrofuturism right now is extremely popular, right? We live in the, the age of black nerds, the blurs, <laughs> you know, whatever that is, you know, to me, when I was growing up, that wasn't a thing, you know. Um, we're also in the era of natural hair being popular, but there was a day that wasn't true, right? And I'm, I'm dressing you because I see all your hair right now. <laughs> so tell me about the time prior to all this popularity with all of these things that we find so cool right now. And, and tell me about the opposition to the, some of the things that we've been doing. <laughs> and I want to start with you particularly about Dark Matter, because I heard you got some pushback on this awesome book that opened my whole world to what we do as black artists. You know, I, I didn't even know that we were interested in those things prior to that book. So. Tell me about the pushback on that. Um, I'll just put it in context. Right now, we we have Black Panther. We have all these great, you know, content creators. We have um, Beyond Milestone and Static Shop. We have all these other characters and women are doing this stuff in all languages around the world. It's a great place to be a person of color, you know, creating these amazing stories, right? Yeah. Um, but I will just say when I started working on what became Dark Matter in 1998. Uh, honey, <laughs> it was not the same conversation. We had just pretty much had maybe possibly convinced publishing that black people read books at all. <laughs> I'm mean, going to be really real about this, real conversations. Uh, thank Terry Macmillan for that. Um, she proved that, you know, black people read books and have been reading all these great books all along. We're part of the bottom line of all your faves. 
Um, we might not show up at your bookstore or do the signing or be at your con because that might not be a part of our tradition necessarily. Mm-hmm. Then, well, yeah, I trust and believe we were reading and buying the books. But there was a conversation in publishing that we didn't. And Terry McMillan had to show that commercially that these kinds of stories, you didn't have to just, you didn't have to be Toni Morrison. You didn't have to be James Baldwin or Richard Wright. There were other kinds of stories that we wanted to read as well, and those could be very commercially viable. So she became a bestseller and changed a bit of that conversation. Um, I was working at One More Books um, with amazing black women editors, and um, I will just say the conversations about science fiction, black science fiction, was just Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney. Perhaps they, you know, people will remember that Stephen Barnes. <laughs> was publishing and had been an apprentice with Larry uh, Neven and Jerry Purnell yep. in publishing works. Uh, perhaps they might have um, discovered Tanana Redu, who was just coming out of being a journalist in Miami and doing her first books with The Between and others. Uh, maybe they might have some sense of feminist writers and maybe remember Joe Gomez. But the, you know, you could find the other people, depending on who you ask, but there are only new two. And so there was this ideal that we weren't maybe we do read we know everybody knows James Baldwin and like Lacey Hughes maybe Zora Neherson they watched the Spike Lee movie or you know or you know remembered Alice Walker rediscovering her but they did not have this ideal that there was any other writers and that certainly no one would want to read them so the the project was met with Confusion, I would say, but then there was also a little excitement. But critical claim is not the same as people running out and buying the books. I mean, the idea was that this was a moment in time. We're going to acknowledge it. You know, New York Times came to my home and took a photograph of me and my daughter and, you know, in my messy office. <laughs> Thousands of books behind me looking crazy. Um, I had straight hair then. <laughs> <laughs> And it was just really interesting, and it became a New York Times book of the year and all that good stuff. But that did not translate to if I, when I showed up, thanks to Betsy Mitchell, my editor, who's the visionary, who also created Warner Aspects' first novel contest that discovered Novel Hopkinson. Um, and she's the one that, that bought Dark Matter. When she had me go to cons, it didn't mean that people were happy to see me or that they even knew what to say or, about, you know, our authors. It was very awkward. You know, there were some people that I still remember them to this day who were wonderful, um, but it was not a cool experience. Um, I don't think Call Brandon Society existed then. Um, this was before social media. Um, we were still doing emailing. Um, uh, it's just there wasn't a critical community of, of fandom or black pe- people of color. Just talking to LaShawn about, you know, the things that are happening at Wisconsin and how the People of Color Dinner now has 80 people. Right. 80, and the hotel is not big enough to hold them anymore. Oh, wow. And that's just the people who can go to the dinner. <laughs> so there are changes there. This is 20 years, and, yeah. and this is about 20 years. You know, so I've been in this, I have like a different perspective. Like it's great to see it, but I'm also a little kind of, a little kind of war torn. You know, yeah. because it was not a wonderful experience the whole time. And so if you're exhausted with the diversity, inclusion conversations and the Twitter battles now, just yes. imagine what it's like when it wasn't even cool to have yeah. a conversation. There was no hashtag to go and find a community to cry with. It was just us out here 
Yeah. Just trying to figure it out. So, Maurice, well, you had similar on uh, pushback on Dark James. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, when, when did uh, Dark Matter come out? Um, I started working on it in 98, published, uh, sold it in 99, published in 2000, paper came out in 2001. Okay. Yeah. And then we did a second one, 2004, 2005. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so by that 2004, 2005 time, that's when Dark Dreams was being put together. And so Dark Dreams is a, an anthology by Brandon Massey. And, uh, and so Brandon had this strange conceit that, hey, there might be black horror writers out there. <laughs> Which at the time was such a novel idea that there might be black horror writers out there. Because um, we weren't, I mean, I mean, you go to a convention, there was a reason we all knew each other. Because we, we could all fit on this couch. <laughs> and so, so, uh, so Brandon, Brandon starts putting together the, uh, uh, Dark Dreams. And it was interesting. So that, that pushback you were talking about, even as the, the idea of Dark Dreams caused pushback. So it's like all of a sudden you see all these conversations about, man, this is reverse discrimination. <laughs> all right. That's the thing. Right. Like, <laughs> what do you mean you can only accept black writers for this? And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, <laughs> every anthology y'all done to date, <laughs> to date, has been an all-white anthology, and usually an all-white male anthology. No claims, of, no one was about discrimination or, or racism then. All of a sudden, you've added this word to your vocabulary now, right? But then it wasn't just the idea that you know Brandon did that because I mean for a start I mean it was good to see others of us out there I mean that was just that was just valuable and all of a sudden we have like this list of oh wait I got some people I can reach out to but then he the unthinkable happened it sold well <laughs> I mean we did a signing with and he and he thought out outside the box when it came to putting together the, the table of contents because you know he was like you know what Zane is a huge writer. Let me see if I can get her to write a horror story. Zane has a huge following. And Zane has a huge following. Uh, and so we go, you know, you go to the signings and lines of black folks signed up for a horror anthology. So this thing sold well. Um, now, don't get me wrong, it's still the same conversation were happening. All the, you know, if you were in this book, oh, you were in, uh, you know, because coming up, if I ever, if I ever appeared in a magazine, I was an, I was an affirmative action. Uh, edition. edition. <laughs> you know, I was the token in the anthology, right? And we'll forget how good you have to be just to be that token to make that one appearance to crack, crack in the first place. That wasn't even in the consideration. It was, oh no, because like an like an editor, I'm, I'm, we're sitting at a, there's a there's a collection of editors right now. Ain't none of us trying to put someone in who doesn't come up to par because that hits our reputation. Right. So don't act like oh well, they lowered the bar for you. No. And then what people forget is every writer that you reject sees what you accepted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like when you're doing an anthology, if you put some bullshit in there, everybody who got rejected saw that. Right. Like for me, like the the standard for editing is I have to come up with something I can never be in. You know, that way I can justify anything. I'm sorry, I didn't. No, it's too late now. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it's for me. I, I mean, I think that we pretty much have the because we're roughly the same age, and Troy's the youngin. Uh, it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, you know, I started. I think like I got my first story acceptances in '93 because that's when I was still living in the Czech Republic, and then after that, 
I didn't get I didn't get accepted again. So I got to a point where, um, yeah, everything I wrote, nobody nobody got. And, and you know how you know racism is like the the ultimate gaslighting. You never know if it's you or if it's something else. And this is before social media, so I actually just recently started telling the story. I gave up. I threw away every single thing that I'd ever written. Yeah, because I was done. So there are literally no short stories for me because I threw them all the way. In fact, I'm working on something now that I've thrown away <laughs> and, and I'd let a friend read it 17 years ago. And just out of the blue, I was just like, you wouldn't happen to have a copy of this thing. <laughs> And it was this old screenplay. Of it. She's like, yeah, I keep everything because she's an academic and an archivist. <laughs> so, like, I, like, and she literally had the only copy of this story that I had. Well, it's, so, it's interesting you say that because the, the real reason behind the question is there's going to come a time where Afrofuturism falls out of this 15 minutes of fame. Oh, what happened? That's happened several times. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what happens? What keeps you going through that? And what can artists do to keep the work and the momentum going regardless of the thing? Well, I mean, I mean the, the momentum will, I mean, okay, so as I said, we've been here before. So there's two, there are two things that, I, two conflicting ideas, which is why I have Rosarium and why, while I want to quit, I don't necessarily think that I will. Um, so we've been here before. All right, so we know what happens, right? We, we, we had the Harlem Renaissance, you know, we had swing jazz, we've had disco where they made more money than they could ever think of and still shut it down. You know, we had black exploitation that never lost money. And it's just a matter of like, okay, we've recovered and we now have a model that we can work off of. So we're done, right? Um, you know, it's like Disco's making a lot of money, and then Peter Frampton Live comes, and they're like, oh, so we just do studio, or, you know, stadium rock. You know, um, so we've been here before, so we know that it'll be shut down, and it won't be shut down for any reason other than we want to shut it down. Because they'll say it's financial, but then you'll, you'll look and you'll say, like, it wasn't at all. Um, but the other thing is, these things are shut down when the brown population in this country didn't exceed 20%. Now, it's at 38%, I think, and all these brown folks are overrepresented in our college populations, and we'll be a majority-minority country in like 20 years. So, now we're in uncharted territory, because we don't know what's going to happen, because there's actually, there are enough people to actually keep it going, even when they do want to shut it down. And part of the whole resistance thing that I was, that I was going to say is, um, I can't talk about it because we're live streaming, but um, <laughs> believe me, it's no, 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 because if you get me started, we'll be here for like we'll be here till Monday. Going, is he still talking? <laughs> but um, you know, it's not like there isn't still resistance. It's just that y'all don't see it. I do, and my doctor does. <laughs> anyway. But, Troy, yeah. what about you? Um, you know, you since you are the younger one on the panel, mm -hmm. um, you haven't grown up in the same place that everyone else did, but I'm sure you've had to struggle with your own finding your own lane, finding support. Yeah. How do you keep going? Um, for me, um, especially as someone who is 
I guess, trying to become an Afrofuturist, right? Uh, whatever that means, because that's not a profession, it's a way of being. But um, I have to stay in right relationship with my work and what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to portray for people um, and know what my vision is for what I'm trying to do, um, especially for my community, right? So I am very, there's a term that has come into vogue the past few years, unapologetically black. And then I say my color is black. And I mean all black everything. I mean all black everything. Like I am here for black people. I do what I do for black people. Um, I do what I do for black people so that we can imagine these new futures and then plot a course to get to them. And so when I am creating, that is the top of my mind. And that keeps me going even when, for example, like right now, when I don't have as many writers on call to reach out to. Cherie's in my city, but Cherie's very busy. Cherie's in demand. She's going and she's running and I want her to get her work done. She's doing amazing work. And I know I can reach out to her whenever, but I want her to do what she has to do. My other friends, my other mentors in my city, I want them to do what they have to do. They're still working writers. And unfortunately, and Cherie can attest to this, but she's very kind and won't say it. We have legends in our midst who are not and have not been given their proper due. So they have to work as hard as I have to work, even though they have 20 years of experience, a bunch of successes, and a whole bunch of notoriety that should translate into some goddamn money. (laughs) So I want them to get their money. And that sometimes means I have to do this alone. I have to do this in the community. So being in the right relationship with my work and saying, hey, I'm doing what I'm doing because of this thing. And this is what keeps me going. This idea of a black future that is resplendent and bountiful for all of us keeps me going through a lot of the bullshit they've been up here talking about that they've had to go through on behalf of me, right? So that's the, that's the I think, $10 answer. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask one last question oh, before I open oh, it up. I didn't answer. Well, i got to keep it moving. So. I know, but I didn't answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that ain't even going to be good, dude. <laughs> well, I know, there's all this build-up, and I'm like, I mean, work, work. All right. No, because, you know, I, I'm just thinking about that because, uh, you know, like, I, I just sold a, you might not know this, but I, I recently <laughs> sold a trilogy. It's a, an Afrofuturist trilogy. And so, but one of my fears is by the time the book comes out, it's no, all gone. Look here. We're not going to let But, you know, yeah. and it's not, by the way. Where's Diana? This this will sell well. (laughs) But, you know, what if it did? What if it didn't? What do I do next? There's two things that keep me going. One, I write for me in the first place. So everything I I write, you know, I write, you know, I'll write this trilogy. I'll probably write two more books on top of that just to put in my drawer just because I had to get them out of me. And I'm happy with that. If they never sell, I'm good with that because they're my stories. I'll always have those stories. That's, so that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, with the Kepler Institute, I'm their resident Afrofuturist. <laughs> right? And part of that means... <laughs> but for me, what that means is my work is tied to community. So even if, another, if not one more book, uh, if one more book of mine, if none of them sell, doesn't matter. I still got the work to do. I still got community to work with them, and I'm, and that's as much my Afrofuturist input, you know, that's all there for me, and I keep doing that. So. You could have just waited for my next question. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, y'all can answer this one. 
<laughs> so really, I just wanted to um, understand from your perspective, like, what is the role and responsibility of the artist in building community? Not just your own craft, but, uh, you know, going back to the old conversation, art for art's sake or art for purpose? Anybody? So, no, yeah, please. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm going to throw out book recommendations. I've been meaning to do it kind of throughout this talk, but I've been... Can you somebody uh, write that down for me? Whatever you just says. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a book that I think everyone who is engaged in any kind of social good, activism, community organizing, uh, public service, whatever, a book that you also read is called Emergent Strategy. Yep. Yep. It's Major yep. Marie Brown. And it is essentially an Afrofuturist handbook on how to build and maintain and sustain loving movement-based communities. Right. Um, and as Adrian is an artist, she's a writer. Um, she talks about how to cultivate that practice in community and how even as I talk about like a lack of community in my home, Cherie is my community. Cherie is my home. Right. And it is about these one to one, one to two relationships with people who understand why you do what you do, understand that you have a story and you, you need to get that story out regardless of how much it sells where they can be packaged into something that, you know, we can make a lot of money on. That story is there regardless. And when you are in relationships with people like that, even if it's not critical mass, you can do revolutionary work. And so for me, artists build community by being in these relationships, by seeking out these relationships, by finding people who understand the point of what you do and the, the, the drive that keeps you doing it because you have to get this out because you are not right unless you are not creating a thing. Um, and even if that's not a bunch of people, it can still be very powerful. You can still have the iron that sharpens you to keep doing the work you want to do. Can you repeat the question one more time? What's the role and responsibility of the artist in building community? Well, for me, what it looks like, this, mm. it's one of the reasons I do MoCon. Mm. You know, to build community, to, you know, I, I tell everybody, if you come to MoCon, I'm in your community now. Yeah. Right. Said to me. Right. That's what. <laughs> we are an email away. A yep. phone call. Look here, I might show up at your house. You don't know. Please do. <laughs> you know, you know, welcome, right? But I mean, it's all about building community. Yeah. I mean, what I what I want out of this, I want family out of this. I want family in the work. I want family to support me. Mm-hmm. I want to be there to support my family. Yeah. So yeah, so we got this. Yeah. We got this. You man. <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> For me, you know, um, you just have to choose your own path. I mean, uh, if you want to do the art for art's sake thing, go ahead. And if you want to do that in any vein, because, you know, some people ain't got shit to say, <laughs> you know, and so let them be quiet. <laughs> you know, I've done things for fun. I mean, I wrote a book called My Booty Novel. That was just for fun. Um, you know, and my booty novel. My booty novel, yeah. And this bad mother's thing that I just did, that was for fun too. Um, and the, the thing is, is that um, when, you're in, when you're in the public, um, you're, you're a source of inspiration, whether you know it or not, for a lot of people. So, you know, I've had people who in disparate fields say, like, what you're doing, you know, inspired me to do X, Y, and Z, just the way you carry it. 
So, you know, I mean, I started Rosarium very much for, I mean, I started it for other people. I started it for other artists. Um, because, you know, publishing was a lot less diverse six years ago than it is now. Um, and we have built a community out of Rosarium and a lot of people who have been tangentially involved and gone to do stuff. People have been, you know, in the heart um, in it. They've started conventions and all this other stuff. People work in, li- you know, librarians are doing, re- you know, I mean, like, there's like this disparate, wide ranging group of people almost around the world who are doing these different things who are a part of our family, you know. Um, and it's amazing when you actually think about just this, like, this little thing that started with mothership and just all the different people that it's touched and all the different things that have happened and the, all the things that people who were doing stuff already became a part of it too. And it's just, you know, and I never saw that coming, <laughs> you know? So yeah, you, you just have to choose your own. And that's why we do it. So that one day we can all choose our own paths. Like that's the entire point. Like I want to give you the freedom to be trifling. <laughs> <laughs> Be a trifling revolutionary. Like, this is what I want to do. I think the responsibility of the artist is to be in touch with your art and know why you're doing it. Mm. Um, to always check in with yourself, to try to remain open and self aware about your relationship to what you're doing, and to take care of yourself. That's the other yes. book that. Um, Adrienne Marie Brown has gifted us with pleasure activism. Mm-hmm. This ideal that um, all the work that you're doing, whether it's art and or social justice work, it takes a toll on you mentally, spiritually, and physically, and that part of your responsibility is to stay alive on the planet yeah. as well as you can. And so that is a part of your professional practice as mm-hmm. well. Um, the other thing, the responsibility of the artist is to be the best that you can be at what you're doing and to try to be authentically yourself. Um, I mean, why would I want to write another book like Elmore Leonard, if I, even if I could? He's already out there doing that. He already did that. Right. You know, I love Cormac McCarthy, but I don't need to be Cormac McCarthy. I need to be Sheree Renee Thomas. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you just have to stay in conversation with yourself no matter what's happening. Um, Sapphire said, right through the times where you're marketable, when the times where you're not, mm-hmm. push through that. So you just have to just stay in that in that rhythm because there are rhythms to life. Um, the other thing I want to talk about um, in terms of this work, community work, is institution building. Um, I was in Berlin last fall um, at a celebration of um, W.E.B. Du Bois because one of the things that Dark Matter did was introduce his work mm-hmm. as science fiction because um, he had written um, at the time, I knew of two stories, and then we found out later that there was a third one in his archives. Um, but this ideal that part of what made the black arts movement kind of fade away, besides of the external political things that were happening in America, was also the lack of, or the few institutions that were built out of it. Mm-hmm. And so we're learning now in this 2.0, maybe possibly eventually 3.0 version of Afrofuturism, 1.0 was about translating to other 
people, white people in particular, hey, you know, we have a philosophical approach to this too. We're interested in, in bridging the digital divide. You know, we're going to talk about Derrida and Foucault and all this as well. We can do this too. And that was one conversation, was, you know, but 2.0, it's, it's more internal now. And I'm looking at it as institution building. So if you are creating the art, it's not just enough sometimes to have art, but you need to have spaces where artists can create and where they can be paid and that they can have health care and that they can be alive and they can be on the planet too. So we're looking at institution building. So part of that responsibility community is what are, what are the institutions you have in your building? In your, what are the buildings, what are the brick and mortar places, what are the virtual spaces, what are the places where people can go to the watering hole and replenish themselves? What are the institutions? What are the publishing companies? Who you know? Who are who are doing the nonprofit organizing and helping you stay on point? Who's creating those conferences and cons where people can network one to one and talk with each other? What are the institutions that are going to be part of it? And also, it has to be more grassroots. Yes. Because if you just write a grant, I'm looking at, I won't say the city. But if you just write a grant <laughs> and you say, we're going to do urban Afrofuturism and you get your, your graphic designer for this amazing design and then you go and invite someone who hasn't done Afrofuturism in 30 years, you're not really concerned about Afrofuturism. Who are you talking about? Who's the audience? Who's going to participate in this? Because we're in communities. I live in Memphis. We're trying to get our roads fixed. We're trying to get our schools staffed. We're trying to get modern technology. We want them to teach computer science in the 21st century. We're trying to keep the arts in classes. We need trees on the streets. We want aesthetically beautiful, pleasing places. We want to have the resources that happen once a place gets gentrified, you know, but we want to still be able to afford to live there too. So if you're doing that, to me, that's Afrofuturism because we don't have any of that right now. You know what I mean? But if you're just talking about some interesting things that you did on the, in a computer, that looks like, uh, you know, some kind of uh, futuristic movie, but it has no relationship to the black people walking around yes. in your community right now, yes. then that's that's irrelevant. So mm -hmm. it needs to be grassroots. You need to have activists in the room. The first time I experienced that was in Jackson, Mississippi, with Planet Deep South. Mm -hmm. um, it was something that developed by Dr. Red Bernardo Anderson and the artist John Jennings that became Black Speculative Arts Movement. And they literally have been moving around the countries, place by place, by invitations to come and meet people just like you. People who love this body of work, who love the art, who love the fiction, the writing, the music, and who have all that talent there. And they just want to know, how do we build a community? How do we get this work out? How do we grow? And so it's a movement now. So yeah. that's the other phase to this. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, and to, to the point about institution building, so I'm a professional institution maintainer in my day job. And a, a, an important point with institutions, especially for us as we build these institutions, is to make sure that everyone in our communities are welcome in those institutions. We can't build institutions for us and five of our friends and not let make our, our space accessible to the people on the other side of town. If we're talking about we're building an Afrofuturist space or if we're doing Afrofuturist community work, everybody, all of us have to be involved in that, invited into that space, welcome in that space if we're not. And it's not just like all different classes of black people. This is black people with at different levels of marginalization. We're talking about disabled black people, we're talking about black people 
who have different gender identities, but people who love different kinds of people, right? All of these people have to be welcome and have to be, they have to know they're welcome because we can't leave them. The, the, the project of finding our future does not leave people behind. We can't do that. So that's an additional responsibility. Thank you. Okay, I want before we go, I want to open it up to a few questions. Uh, running a little low on time. Sorry. <laughs> we're, we're on the ish schedule, so we're okay. good. Okay. Love people. Anybody have any questions? Go ahead, Dion. Yeah. I'm curious. Are any of you working on projects or pieces that uh, is trying to encourage or influence a specific desired future state? For a future what? A desired future state. So, for example, it could be a piece that may be a novel, but underneath it all, it's encouraging cooperative economics or it's encouraging a type of lifestyle that you feel is critical to um, Afrofuturism. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, my novel in progress is, um, I won't tell too much about it, but it really is the story. Uh, it's a near future, uh, not set about 10 years in the future, and it is about a group of young black people who have abilities that enable them to navigate the dangers of their future and come out in a different way and able to access what they need, right? And so the, the novel I'm working on is influenced very much by all the reading I've been doing. I've been reading Dr. Renato Anderson's work. I've been reading work from 20 years ago, Alondra Nelson's work. I've been reading all of these different, um, Coet Chun, everyone who's been discussing these types of thought patterns and the ways these, our, our desired futures manifest in our work. And that, that came out with essentially like black people with superpowers in a city that hates not just them having superpowers, them being black, right? And uh, so through these characters, I'm working out what I think our future might look like because I think that black people, we don't have superpowers. That's a, that's a really racist thing to think, but we are very exceptional. And we have been, we have had exceptional pressures on us. I think those things manifest in ways that guide how we move through time and space. And so, yes. And I'm hoping that um, when I finish this novel, when I release it, that what I think I'm saying is actually what's coming out. Because I have some really, really, but I think are really interesting ideas about what the world will look like when black people are finally activated and, work, and working at our, vibrating at our highest frequency. So to use a, you know, some hotel terminology. But essentially, you know, I'm wanting us to, I'm wanting to espouse this idea of a world where we are very, very powerful and very, very uh have, have a lot of agency and that power to influence what we think the world should look like instead of being influenced by the world. Look, because I'm going to actually ask you guys what you're working on in oh, just a okay, second. Okay. No, you're fine. Did anybody else have another question before we go ahead? Okay. So, Sheree, you were talking the grassroots piece of it and, you know, getting down to it. So, Maurice and I have these late night conversations at times. <laughs> um, but I think one of, the, one of the things that I've been trying to figure out is how, did, how from a grassroots perspective do you get people to start thinking more? I mean, because I love being here and Maurice and I have some great conversations, but sometimes I start trying to engage some of these conversations with other people and their eyes just kind of glaze over and they just kind of fade away. And I don't know how to get them into that deeper level of thinking to get them to start doing something like that, to get them into that community, to start thinking bigger rather than just this minor where they're at and giving out of that. 
I'm going to go back to a middle person, and Adrian is probably feeling really loved right now. All loved up. Um, and I'm going to uh, mention another wonderful writer and scholar, uh, um, Alexis Pauline Gons. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk about an opera called Parable that was based off of Octavia Butler's mm-hmm. novel, Parable of the Sword. And what has happened is that emergent strategy came out of the Earthsea um, par- uh, verses in the first novel. Uh, parable of the sword and it's like this idea that God has changed you know and that we need to be the change out here um, in the world addressing these issues and so what's happened is that they use the novel as a um, as a a, 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 uh, a case study for issues that are happening in the communities so maybe it started I think um, Walida and Marishna and Adrian Marie Brown did a book called Octavius Brood, which is science fiction and fantasy from the social justice movement. So these were people who actively are working in communities, um, dealing with whether it's water issues or health or reproductive issues or infant um, mortality or any kinds of things, environmental racism, all these things. And they had them write science fiction and fantasy stories. How you get people's eyes not to glaze over is to actually be centered around something rooted in the world that's a real thing that's important to them. People have families, so they want them to have healthy, clean water. If you're having a meeting about what do we do to get our city accountable or try to get this addressed, that's the space where you do it. And you use the work for art and fiction as a way of modeling things that can go wrong, how to address it, what are the tools they use to solve it in the novel. These are conversations that Adrian Marie Brown Alexis Pauline Young's and their whole community have been doing in different places, including Durham, North Carolina. And they worked with people like Troy and um, you and Maurice um, and Maurice (laughs) Um, and other um, people in the community who had specific problems they are trying to address. And they listened to them and they had whole workshops with people from the community that were able to come and to, to share and get testimonies. And they saw, they addressed what their strategies were to be to address it in their communities. So if it's rooted in the real, in the beginning, on something they already have um, urgency about and have an investment in, then you can probably get them to, you know, to start using these other tools. But you got to meet them where they are first. Grassroots activists know that you scold where the people are. Um, you don't want to do like Pastor, uh, Pastor Mike talked about this on Thursday, mm-hmm. how one of his developments was he moved from coming to be a savior. He didn't want to be the, he was coming in as the white savior in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then he realized they, the neighborhood had a lot of information and resources that they he needed to learn about and listen to. And then he was able to activate them all individually and put the power back in their hands where they already had it and just help guide them on how to use it. And that's what they're ready to do. I, mean, I think with Pastor Mike, uh, his, uh, I'm basically an anarcho-communist. Don't tell anybody. Cause <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm very much into the bottom-up thing. And I think one of the, one of the things that um, our society does is they have this really weird concept of a leader. Like, I go in because I'm an alpha male and I have more testosterone and I tell everybody what to do. And I look at leadership as more along the lines of a channeler. Right? It's like, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And a lot of times you're better at what you do than I am. 
So all I need to do is take what you do and try to put it in the right place. And I think that that, to me, seems to make more sense when we're talking about these kind of situations. I mean, because, you know, the clouds over this country are, like, really, really dark. And it's going to, and it's going to take a lot of imagination to, to get through that. And if you think that you know everything, and as we find out, a lot of the most incompetent people in the world are the ones who think that they know everything. <laughs> and the thing is, you can't tell them that they don't know anything. But if you're a channeler, you know, and if you provide those avenues for people, and if you provide like a, a more collaborative space where I'm not telling you what to think, you tell me what to think. And then we can mold this into some kind of workable solution that still may take 20 years, but at least it's a workable solution. And we can keep adding and subtracting as needs go. And we can like take those abandoned ideas and go, oh, it might work now. But a leader, the way that we have it, will not do that. It's pick its charge over and over again. Like, hey, boss, it's kind of stupid to run up that hill in front of uh, all those cannon. I'm going to do it. <laughs> you, know? you know, so like we have to stop being pick its charge and try to think of a different way of how to lead our own existences. And if you have one more question to the audience. Ooh, uh, let's see. Who had their hand up first? Go ahead, Ava. Um, so I'd be interested to hear you guys' thoughts on this. Um, you guys mentioned Black Panther and whenever I think of Afro pictures, I think of Black Panther. But then there's a concept of, you know, through that movie, because I didn't read the comments, but through that movie, you get to see that this is what we imagine um, a futuristic society that was untouched by colonialism would look like versus us right now talking about Afrofuturism. We are combining all these elements together. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that difference and similarities. Can I get a Maurice and Joy to answer that one? Yeah, that's welcome to the world. It's Mocha. Yeah, it's Mocha. I'm so fancy. I'll take the stand. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, Black Panther is really awesome. I did read the comics. I, I did watch the movie. I enjoyed it very much. Um, Black Panther, though, Wakanda specifically, is not was not conceived by Black people. Right? And you can see that a lot, right? The fact that, <laughs> and this is this was this was in the jokes that came out of the movie. The fact that like. All this terrible stuff happened to black people globally between you know the time they discovered vibranium the present day and like the comics closed off. Right. And even even in their neighboring countries, that is not something I don't think that's something that somebody with like a pan-African worldview would really build into a country like that. So Wakanda is, I mean, if you take if you take it as like kind of central rules of Afrofuturism, Wakanda is definitely futuristic, but I don't know how African it is. Right. Even with Ryan Coogler taking it and building all these real cool elements, these real cool visual elements um, that are Afrofuturistic and do inspire people to like think about, oh, well, this might be what a black utopia would look like. I think it, my Afrofuturism doesn't work like that. My Afrofuturism sounds like what Sharif's talking about, building these communities that are very, very stable, able to sustain themselves, able to raise and maintain healthy people, which I'm sure we kind of did. Um, but if if a Wakanda really existed, I think it would look more like something that, you know, was not just focused on itself and focused on keeping the world out because they would know that they had the capability to shape the direction the world went in. So I was very excited in a sense, not in a complete sense, but in a sense to see the child go to the United Nations. Y'all seen it, right? 
Interesting to see that that was the solution they chose. He bought up, you know, the block in Oakland that he, um, you know, went to the United Nations to petition other countries. Both really like in system capitalist ways of thinking about how to solve these problems that that are addressed that are happening in the world. But um, I don't know. So there's a there's a dichotomy to me, uh, a big one. Um, and uh, there's an essay by uh, an, uh, a comic creator named Paul Louis Julie who talks about. How Wakanda, he is African, he is of African descent, he's closer to the continent than I am. And he talks, he breaks it down really well about how uh, he finds Wakanda bland and uninspired. Because from where he sits and where he what he thinks, he's an Afrofuturist as well, uh, how he conceptualizes Afrofuturism is complete and totally separate from what we saw Wakanda be, even though he liked some parts of it. I will put on my comic book nerd hat for a minute. Please do, please do. Because I did read the comics. Uh, in fact, I collected the comics. I collected every Black Panther appearance in the comics because I have far too much time on my hands. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so Black Panther is one of those things that I, I always gravitated to just because, well, he looks like us. And so I'm, I'm going to keep buying it and maybe one day they'll get it right. And, that's, and so I, that's why I've always approached it. And it wasn't until Black Oddly enough, I know this may shock some people, <laughs> but when they turned the comic book over to a black writer, yeah. <laughs> lo and behold, Black Panther became the book I wanted it to be. Yeah. And he explored ideas that I wanted him to explore. And the whole conversation, I think the big part for me was slightly touched on the movie is like, what does the conversation look like between those of us in the diaspora in Africa? Yes. And I think, and that's the seed that I gravitate to, what that conversation is about. And so if I'm doing any uh, Afrofuturism work, and I am, that's where, that's where it begins for me, is that conversation. Okay, last question. What is everybody working on now, in three minutes or less? Okay. Um, so the, the novel is something I'm working on, uh, trying to work on. Um, but my big thing right now is Fire Magazine. Um, Fire Magazine is, I, I would consider, an Afrofuturist project. Um, as a space that's designed for black people to, you know, produce, help black people produce things that they want in the world. Um, so we are, we are here. Uh, firelitmag.com is our website and we release issues quarterly. I would love it if you all would check out an issue. If it really moves, you purchase a subscription. Subscriptions are how we stay alive. This is, um, the science fiction and fantasy, um, area it has a really, uh, it's blessed to have a lot of places for people to publish short fiction. And that's not true in every kind of literary space. Um, but those places are, are closing really fast. I think Maurice just mentioned that Apex is closing. There are several others this year that have closed. And so if people don't support those magazines, they don't stick around. So I do encourage you all to, I'm making the pitch now. <laughs> but I do encourage you all to check us out, um, buy an issue, uh, buy a subscription. Uh, if you like it, that's awesome. If you don't like it, you can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter, Troy L. Wiggins is my name, because I'm not super creative when it comes to stuff like that. Um, but you can tell me, you know, hey, it sucks. As long as you're not being racist, I'll talk to you about it. If you are being racist, I'm going to cuss you the fuck out. So you don't. <laughs> but I really, I really would like that support for that project. Thank y'all for listening. Uh, FIA, F-I-Y-A-H, Magazine of Black Speculative Fiction. The website is FIA, spelled F-I-Y-A-H. Litmag.com. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm working on something. Are you? Uh, I am. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the way I heard about it, apparently I'm writing something that's 
Black Panther meets The Expanse. Uh, but to come back to Diop's uh, uh, question, you know, one of the things I, I'm loving about doing this project is the world building aspect of it. You know, it's like, hey, if we get to start over, if we get to do, it, do things, you know, if blank slate, what, 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 what could things look like? You know, I get to rethink the economic system. I get to rethink how communities are formed and organized, what the priorities of that, that, that those communities are. And that's been the fun part for me. It's like, oh, yeah, come on, let's do this. Oh, and you're kind of basing that on some real community stuff, right? All right. So she's saying that. <laughs> <laughs> One, because uh, you know, I do a lot of work with, with Kepra. And so part, part of this has always been the idea of, like, man, what would Kepra look like as a galactic empire? Oh, <laughs> okay. right? Okay. And some of the storylines may be based on some of the people in this room. <laughs> I may have given someone the captain of her own starship, so that's why she's particularly pleased with this story. Well, I'm always doing Rosarium. That's, that's, that's my life, so we're constantly coming out with stuff, including Tropical Waters. You should also support that. And of course, we came out with Voices of Martyrs. So. All right, um, and I realized like I won't be able to write a novel anytime soon since I'm doing Rosarium. So we just finished a thing called Bad Mothers. Um, they're an all-female band of space pirates that doubles a James Brown revival band. Okay, um, and that'll be coming out in the fall. Like we just finished it. Uh, and uh, I'm working on the. I told you about the screenplay that I lost. Uh, that's a voodoo western that um, we're changing into a graphic novel. I'm working with uh, uh, Lewis Netter, who's out of the Bronx, even though I thought he was British because that's where he's getting his PhD right now. Uh, <laughs> but that's um, that's all focused on a community of black Seminoles. And I don't know if you know anything about the black Seminoles. How basically they were runaway slaves who went down to Florida. The U.S. fought three wars against the Seminole Nation because of it. Uh, these particular ones, after they got deported to the Indian Territory, where they were, where slave catchers and the Creeks were trying to re-enslave them, they ended up having to escape to Mexico. And they fought for the Mexican government for years, and then they come back to um, the uh, Indian Territory. And where this happens is these these... These black Seminoles have their own town, and then a group of Buffalo soldiers comes in, and they want to take over. So that's what I'm working on right now. And where can we find you? What? Where can we find you? Find me? Or your work. Oh, um, on Twitter, it's a Rosarium Pub, right? Yeah. And then I am Rosarium Bill, and then RosariumPublishing.com. It's uh, R-O-S-A-R-I-U-M. I named it after my daughter, Rosa. Hey, um, what am I not working on? <laughs> Let's see. Like I said, I have a um, new collection. I'm really excited. But my like, last collection, you can absolutely support it. <laughs> I'm sleeping under the tree of life from Aqueduct Press. Um, I love that collection. You should hear about it. Um, I have a new collection, Nine Bar Blues. I'm excited. Coming out from Third Man Books. Uh, got a chance to meet. Um, some great people in Nashville, including celebrating uh, Third Man Records' 10th anniversary, so we yeah. party with rock stars. Hey. Yeah. That was really dope. Got to see Jack White. He's oh, really tall. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was because his mom was there, too. That was great. 
Um, so I'm happy about that. I have a screenplay that I'm like Jordan Collaby, Jordan Peele, <laughs> um, which is basically um, I'm going to use his words a social social thriller. You know, since we're not calling things horror for some reason, um, a social thriller, which is actually a love story, but it's it's a ghost story. <laughs> it's a ghost story, and it's sort of set at the African burial ground in New York, mm-hmm. but it's like, let's see if I could describe it better. Um, what's that movie where the man, oh, it's like ghost story, like Peter's, Peter Straub's ghost story, <laughs> but it's got that Af- African burial ground um, connection, um, a black um, anthropologist um, meets a hot new woman. And she's got more going on than he thought. Yeah, that's called Hey, Blues, look at me. Jordan. <laughs> um, and I also have a novel, but I never talk about it. <laughs> the novel that shall not be named. <laughs> um, but I'm really happy because uh, I worked on it at Breadloaf and it got a lot, a lot of love. So I'm feeling real re-energized and excited and optimistic about this baby. Um, I don't know if this answers Diop's question. I, I, you know, I, I love the, I love reaching for utopias, but they always somehow end up being dystopias. <laughs> so that's what I'm grappling with. But it's, but it's a. Uh, um, Futuristic Memphis earthquake comes and sets our world on fire. Oh, wow. Actually, um, all kind of shit happens. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Oh. You can find me online lurking <laughs> at Black Pop Mojo and um, on Instagram and Facebook, Shri Renee Thomas. Okay. I want to give everybody the opportunity to move to the next thing because I don't know what's next on the agenda. I got you. Oh. Well, first, I just want to just acknowledge this moment, actually, because there's a lot of history on this couch. There's a lot of inspiration on this couch. I mean, Troy doesn't know how much I look up to him and the work that he's been doing with Fire. I am an absolute supporter of of him and what he does. I just really want to just thank my guests, my friends, Bill, <laughs> for being here and for being a part of our time together. So my thank you for my guests. that note, uh, basically what's next up on the agenda is basically just a a break time. Uh, We're going to come back together at five, so you're free to wander this area. You're free to stay here and chat with one another. Again, I'm all about building community. I'll be signing books if uh, y'all want some of these copies of Pit My Airship signed. Today's also happens to be comic book day. And uh, there's a comic book store a couple blocks down on your right. You go down to the light and then to your right, and you'll be seeing there's a comic book store down there. Uh, But like I said, you're free to wander. Oh, by the way, is it today someone's birthday? Why, yes, it is. <laughs> She's not here right now, but let's make sure at some point we wish her a happy birthday. So uh, on that note. Oh, Maurice. Yes, ma'am. This, this artwork is awesome. 
this artwork is awesome. Uh, last night, uh, we had Michi sitting here. Um, and like I said, uh, right now we have the contest going on. You're free to uh, write flash pieces or poems uh, inspired by some of the pieces and put your entries into that envelope. We also have artwork up here. If only we knew who that artist was. And but, oh wait, <laughs> there she is. So that's everybody. So, yeah. Like that, uh, feel free to. Oh, and then submit your wines here. So uh, two-hour break. Enjoy this place. Enjoy each other. Thank and, and thanks for listening to us, guys. Yeah. <laughs> been just keep writing a podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing i am at darth pops on twitter and nick is at bright inks you can find this show on itunes and your favorite podcatchers so like and share this show with your writing community if you'd like to share or discuss anything we talked on the show the last week's task or whatever you have going on you can post it on our discord channel facebook page or send it to me i am marshall at marshallcar.com or nick at nicholas bright at brightinks.org you can find our writing and the show notes for each episode on our websites, marshallcar.com and brightinks.org. Lastly, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is patreon.com slash just keep writing. And you can find us there and give us a couple bucks an episode and help us do what we do and we can help you. You've got the homework done. You have a challenge up ahead of you. Now just keep writing. Keep writing.